If you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Isaiah. We are beginning a new series. I'm going to talk about the series for a minute, Luke. We're beginning a new series called How the Major Prophets Point to Jesus. So that's what we're going to be doing for the summer. That's our summer series, How the Major Prophets Point to Jesus. And this is the beginning of that, as Isaiah is the first of the major prophets. But we're going to be taking a walk through these big books, long books. I was talking with some people this week. If, if I, this, this Sunday is going to be an overview of the book of Isaiah. And if I spent one minute on each chapter... This would be a 66-minute sermon. That's without this introduction, without a conclusion, without any application. Um, And especially since we have some kids up in the sermon for maybe their first time ever, I'm not going to do that. It's also for for the rest of us, too. But that will be the one struggle is like, whoa, there's so much that's so awesome and so much about Jesus in here. It's going to be hard not to talk too long, and not to say too much. And so what are we supposed to feel about that? Part of what we're trying to do with this Major Prophets series is to have everyone go, you know what, I want to read those. Those are parts of the Bible that maybe I don't get to that often. Maybe my Bible reading plan has already crashed and burned, and I've given up, and I read a couple psalms a week uh, because I, I died somewhere, whether in Leviticus or in the historical books, like, didn't I read this story before? And it's like, yes, you did. Um, Some of them are repeated in the Samuels and Kings and Chronicles. And so you did read it before, so keep going. And so maybe maybe you've stopped in there somewhere. So if you don't have a Bible reading plan going on right now, you can start one today. Read Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah. We're going to have four more sermons after this one in Isaiah. So that's going to be Five sermons total, the next four weeks, map it out. It's about 16 chapters a week, which shouldn't be too hard to do. Now, there's some difficult stuff and some confusing stuff, and so we're going to try to help with that. But especially these first sermons in each of the books are aimed at helping us see some of the big things that are there and going, oh man, I want to see that. I want to see that for myself. I don't want, just want to hear a sentence and say, that's in chapter 65. I want to read chapter 65. I want to see what the Lord has for me there because this is God's word and he is still speaking to his people through it. It's not just a record of what happened or what he said in the past. It's for us today. And so what we're going to do with each of these major prophets is we're going to start out with an overview sermon that's aimed to inspire us to go like, that's how I can find Jesus there. I didn't know how I could before, and now I'm ready to give it a shot. And you'll struggle, and we'll use some representative text to say, okay, here's how you do it in this particular text as we go over the next few weeks together. We'll do that for Isaiah, for Jeremiah, Lamentations. We'll do a single sermon for that one. That one's much shorter. It's kind of connected with Jeremiah. And then similarly with Ezekiel, there will be four sermons on Ezekiel, and then there will be two sermons on Daniel, covering that first half and then the second half. And as you can tell already, uh, we're not covering any of these in such depth that we won't come back later and do a full series through the full book. We're just trying to whet everyone's appetite for God's Word and to show what we were taking the whole sermon last time to show 
that the scriptures, the sacred writings, as Paul said to Timothy, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he was talking about books like Isaiah when he said that, and books like all of these major prophets. So that's what we're doing through the summer. So I want to give a big welcome to the kids. We are so glad you're here. Kids, let me see you. Can you raise your hand? Show me. You're in that 6 to 12 age range. Fantastic. We are so glad that you are here, and I hope everyone has already gotten a clipboard and a pencil from the back. If you haven't, you can still go get one, but I see those. I see those there. I see lots of you writing already. That is fantastic. And there's going to be on the screen... There's going to be some underlined words, because I know sometimes it's hard to write. It's even hard for the adults to write down everything that shows up on the screen. And not everything that's on the screen actually is even meant to be written down entirely. It's just kind of to help you know this is where we are in the sermon right now, and it's what we're talking about. But there are some things we hope you will write down. So kids, for you, when you see an underlined word, that's a word for you to try to write down, Okay? So sometimes there will even be like a sentence, and there's just an underlined word here and there and that one, and hopefully all those in order actually work and make something that makes sense when you copy those down. So those are there just for you, and we hope those are helpful for you. And today, we are starting into our series by talking about how Isaiah points to Jesus how Isaiah points to Jesus. And as I said, we're doing a whole book message today. So in some ways, I'm going to go kind of fast and say a lot of things, but I'm sure the kids can keep up. We'll see if your parents can keep up with you. And I want to start by reading just one verse. I told Danny I'm not reading the entire scripture reading today. We've done that with like a couple chapters in Acts, but 66 chapters in Isaiah. I think I might lose some people um, trying to read that all in one, one sitting. So I'm just going to read the very first verse. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Isaiah and Isaiah 1. And we will actually end up reading most of this chapter during the sermon. But we're going to start with just the one verse and then pray and ask for God's help as we look into his word together today. Okay? So Isaiah 1, verse 1. Here we go. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have indeed spoken to us by your word and by your son, and we ask that by the presence of your spirit, you would help us to see from your word today, from the book of Isaiah, what you want us to see, that we'd get out of it what is actually in there. And that we would be amazed at your love for us. And that even though we sin and sin and sin again, you save us. Would you amaze us at your great love today? And would you amaze us that we can find that in Isaiah? We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to start with some basics. That's what we're going to look at first, some basics. We'll do this with each of the overview sermons. What is going on with this book? So, author, who wrote this book? Isaiah. The traditional view is the one presented by the text itself that we just read there in verse 1 of chapter 1. Isaiah, the son of Amos, is the author of Isaiah. And we'll talk more about that actually in a minute after we get through the rest of the basics here. So, the author is Isaiah. Next, 
The date. When did Isaiah live? Well, the time that Isaiah was writing would have been about 750 to 700 BC. So this is the second half of the 8th century BC. BC means before Christ, okay? Now, kids, you're used to seeing dates go up, right? Don't dates go up? If I did this right, wouldn't it say 700 to 750? That would seem right, and that would show how smart you are, but I'm going to give you a big secret. If it's BC, time actually went backwards. Well, it didn't quite go backwards, but they mainly counted time the way that we saw in that verse that we just read. Isaiah saw these visions when this guy was king and that guy was king and that guy was king and that guy was king. That's how they measured their time. Who was king? Or after the nation fell. It was 20 years after that. That's how they measured time back then because they didn't have somebody somewhere. Whoever keeps the time and tells us that now is 2022, whoever's in charge of that wasn't around back then. And so they just kept it by major events in their lives. The most major event in the history of the universe was Jesus coming into the world. And did you know that our time is actually calculated that way? That BC means before Christ. It was such a big deal that people after Christ decided, you know what, the way we're going to have to kind of organize this so we know when things happen is they're just going to count it from when Christ came and you go backwards in time. And so that's why 750 to 700 actually makes sense because it was counting down to when Jesus was going to come, even though these people didn't know it yet. And now we're counting up from when Jesus came, even as we wait for him to come again. So he was prophesying basically in the range of 750 to 700 BC. There are a couple big events that help us know that. One is when the kings reigned. And Isaiah 6, which is commonly referred to as the call of Isaiah, when he has that vision of God's holiness, and it's why we sing, holy, holy, holy. And he says, oh, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the angel takes the coal from off the altar and tells him your, your sin is atoned for. And he says, and then the Lord says, who will I send and who will go for us? And he's like, here am I, send me, I'm ready to go. That passage happened, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, which historians tell us is 739 B.C. And then there's one other historical big historical moment in Isaiah, and that's when the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, tried to take over Jerusalem. And he had a huge army all around Jerusalem, ready to kill everyone there. And Hezekiah was the king then, and he prayed, and the Lord delivered him and the people because they trusted in the Lord. And that happened in about 701. Okay, so that's kind of where we get that range. And as we're thinking about Israel's history and Judah's history, Israel fell to Assyria in 722, so while Isaiah was still prophesying. And then Judah and Jerusalem didn't fall for another over 100 years. It fell in stages in 605, 597, and then finally Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, and it fell to Babylon. So some of the things in here 
he's going to be talking about what's going to happen in the future, not just in the future generally, but even for when he lived, the things that were going to happen about 130 years in the future. So that's the date. Then genre. The kids are like, what is genre? Genre is basically the style of the writing. What kind of a book is this? You read different books, right? You read books of poetry. Do you read books of, yep, okay, I see that. Thumbs up, thanks. Do you read books of history? Do you read some maybe mystery stories or novels, something like that? So there's, that's genre, all these different kinds of things. And so even though the Bible is one big book, it's 66 different books inside it. And some of them are doing different things. And so mainly what's happening in Isaiah is it's mostly prophetic visions and oracles. Where Isaiah is saying something like, the Lord said to me. Or, like what we read, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw. And so Isaiah is reporting on what the Lord has said to him and what he saw. And it's being written down, not just for the people who lived then, but also for us. So it's mostly prophetic visions and oracles. There is a little bit, as I talked about a minute ago, of history in there as well. And those historical moments serve to remind us that we need to trust in the Lord. He alone is our Savior. And that actually gets us toward where the big idea will be. But before the big idea, we have one fun fact about Isaiah. Talked about the author, the date, the genre. The fun fact is Isaiah is referenced the most by the New Testament. What we mean by that is more than any other Old Testament book, the New Testament refers back to Isaiah. Now, it's a really close race with Psalms, and it's one of those races where, like, they finish in a photo finish, and everyone else is about a mile and a half behind, okay? There's, like, twice as many references to Isaiah and Psalms, each individually, as there are to any other single book in the New Testament. Isaiah is referenced by the New Testament over 400 times. I was talking with someone about that this week, and it's like, hey, how many times do you think uh, Isaiah is referenced? It's like, I don't know, I would have said maybe 30. That feels high. It's like 400. There are 12 direct quotations, 61 citations. Those are quotations where it says, and the prophet said, or, and Isaiah said, 61 of those, 103 echoes where there's language from Isaiah that's just kind of picked up by the New Testament because Isaiah was just the air that they breathed as God's people. And then over 236 allusions. So it is amazing. So another tip for your own Bible reading as you're thinking about possibly reading Isaiah over the next several weeks is to check the cross-references in your Bible. Do you know what those are? So many Bibles have down the middle line on your page some small print that maybe for the kids you don't even know what all it means because there's lots of abbreviations in there. And that's actually telling you where the verses you're reading are referenced or where there are similar ideas in other places in the Bible. And if you're reading on an app, 
then it's even easier because it's right there, and then there are links, and you just tap it, and it just pops up that other verse. And you can see, oh, this is how Matthew used this text. This is how Paul used it in Romans. This is where it's quoted by Peter. The New Testament authors thought that the book of Isaiah was really important for telling the story about Jesus and the good news about him. And so we should too. Before we get to the big idea, though, I want to deal with one more thing. There's a big question. Is there really one author of Isaiah? I'm saying that there is. And the Christian church for a really long time said that there's one Isaiah who wrote one book that ended up on one scroll that Jesus could read years later all together on one scroll. But for different reasons, some people think that there were two, three, or even up to a dozen different authors of Isaiah. People have thought that some of the content in the later part of the book that seems to already know about the exile that would come, which wasn't going to happen for over a hundred years after Isaiah stopped prophesying, they're like, well, he couldn't have known that, and so he must have been writing it later, especially the specific prophecy about Cyrus. So Jerusalem finally fell in 586, and then in 539, a bunch of years later, a guy named Cyrus, the Persian, is the king of the empire, and he's the one who makes the decree that God's people can go back into their land. And Isaiah names Cyrus at the end of Isaiah 44 and the beginning of Isaiah 45. So 44, 28, and 5, 1. Isaiah talks about Cyrus. So they say that the second, which is also the more hopeful part of Isaiah, had to have been written by disciples of Isaiah who really understood all the prophecies that he was writing and the judgments that he was pronouncing in the beginning and then sought to apply them in a new situation. Now, we're going the more traditional route and saying Isaiah wrote this and there are a few reasons for this. One, The book itself, the book of Isaiah, claims that Isaiah is the author and never claims that anyone else is the author. There's a bunch of points that are like chapter 1 and verse 1. So that one kind of sits over the whole thing, saying he prophesied during all these guys' reigns. And then there's other times where there's a specific chapter, specific prophecy that says this was the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Second reason, the Lord can predict the future. In fact, That's talked about in Isaiah at several points in the 40s, as far as the chapters of Isaiah. The Lord is speaking and says, can't I tell the end from the beginning? Didn't I make everything? Can't I tell what's going to come to pass? Your idols can't do that. So it's really interesting that right in that part that they would say is written later, there are claims that the Lord can tell the future. It's interesting, too, that in an early part, Isaiah 13, which would definitely be in the, in the first Isaiah, if there were two or even three Isaiahs, the Lord predicts the fall of Babylon, which wasn't even a major player yet when Isaiah was prophesying. Isaiah 13, 17, we'll have this up on the screen, says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes, Against them. That's in a prophecy about Babylon and its fall and who would take them out. And that's who takes them out. The Medes takes out Babylon. And this is the moment in the book that may be the most relevant for considering Isaiah as the author of the entire book. 
Others would say there's no way he could have predicted what was going to happen a couple hundred years later. So maybe they'd even pick out this chapter and say, well, it must have been written by someone else later. And then they just stuck it early in Isaiah. But Isaiah 13 is one of those particular chapters that has a heading. Look at the heading. Isaiah 13.1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So either someone's lying to us, we need to throw the whole thing away. Or, Isaiah wrote Isaiah. If we need one more, the New Testament authors also affirm Isaiah as the author of all of Isaiah. That's the view of the New Testament authors, is that Isaiah wrote the book. The Apostle John, in his gospel, John 12, 27 and 38, says, though, they had done many, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that quote is, of course, one we know pretty well from Isaiah 53, which would be squarely in that later part that's not Isaiah Another one, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Romans 10.20, then Isaiah, these are some of those citations, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And that quotation is from Isaiah 65. And there's a lot more where that came from. We just don't have time to show all 15 or however many there are that are quoting from later on. So if we believe that the Bible has integrity within itself, if we believe that God speaks through his word, if we believe that the Lord has the ability to tell what's going to happen in the future, then on the authority of God's word itself, we conclude that Isaiah is the author of the book that bears his name. And so now, here's what I've been waiting for and trying to get to. The big idea for Isaiah. As, As we read through Isaiah individually, maybe as families. I got an email from one family this week. I'm like, what's the plan for the sermon series? We're trying to sketch out what we're going to do as a family this summer with our Bible reading so we can track along with the series. I think that is fantastic. Here is the big idea that we want to be looking at all along as we're reading. In spite of their sin, the Lord saves his people through the sacrificial suffering of his servant. In spite of their sin, The Lord saves his people through the sacrificial suffering of his servant. And this slide's actually going to be up for a really long time because we're just going to work through this phrase by phrase. So, in spite of their sin. We've talked about it a little bit already and had some readings that referenced sin, and those were from Isaiah One thing you'll be struck by as you start reading Isaiah, there is a lot of judgment in Isaiah. There is a lot of pronouncement of woes against Judah, the southern kingdom, against Jerusalem, which is the capital of that southern kingdom, but also against Moab, against Assyria, against Babylon, and ultimately against the whole earth. So there is judgment on God's people and the nations. But that judgment isn't just because God likes judging people. It's because of their sin. 
And in the early chapters of Isaiah, that sin is identified as idolatry, like Pastor Aaron talked with us about already this morning. Putting someone or something in the place of God. It's about oppression, about injustice. And God even says, don't come to me with your offerings while you're oppressing one another. Your offerings stink in my nose because it's not about doing the offerings. It's about doing what I have given you to do. And so I want to read Isaiah chapter 1. We read the first verse. We're going to read now verses 2 through 20, and this will kind of set up where a lot of things are going. Hear the Lord's indictment of his people. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, Who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Part of what we're supposed to feel after reading a text like this is that sin is not just out there. It's tempting for us to see words of judgment, words about evils that people do, and it's like, yeah, man, we live in a bad world with a lot of bad people. Not me, of course. No one here, of course. And we can tend to think about sin, and, well, I mean, sure, man, we have, like, little ones, but the big ones, it's what they do. And the Lord will have plenty of time 
for pronouncing woes on the people who are outside of his people. But he has a lot of time to talk about the sin of his own people. Sin is not something that is only out there, what other people are doing. That's the point of all these woes. For us to see, for us to feel, for us to know our sin, but that we don't have to be condemned for it, right? Even here in chapter 1, before he's highlighting how this happens and why this happens, he says, come on, your sins can be made white as snow. You're covered in blood now because of your sinfulness and your oppression and your injustice, but you can be made clean. As you continue reading through, you'll see that the people were trusting in false gods. That's highlighted in chapter 2 and in 41 and 44, 57 and 65. They're trusting in other nations. They're saying, don't go down to Egypt. The Lord's saying, don't trust in Egypt. They won't defend you. Don't you remember Egypt? But God's people are tempted to trust in other nations when they're in trouble. They're tempted to trust in false gods when it seems like things aren't going their way. They're tempted to trust in their nation's unfaithful leaders. To act like all that's wrong can just be fixed by the leaders. No one in America would ever think that. If we can just get the right people in government, everything will be good again. And they trust in themselves. They place their trust in all these things that cannot hold that will not work. And it's why, as Aaron read for us from Isaiah 55 and exhorted us way back at the beginning today, why do you spend your money on things that aren't good for you, on things that won't satisfy? That's the essence of idolatry. Instead of coming to the Lord, we go everywhere else. And eventually, God's people are sent into exile. And part of this is aimed at people in exile, as Isaiah is speaking prophetically from the Lord. But even here in the very first chapter, even with the threat of exile and judgment to come, there is hope of restoration if there is humble repentance. And of course, as we know, the people of Judah chose to continue in their rebellion and were sent away to Babylon for 70 years. So what happens in the rest of this is in spite of their sin, just like it is for us. In spite of their sin, the sovereign Lord. This is a huge emphasis in Isaiah. The sovereign Lord. And kids, I'm sure your sharp eyes notice that there's one word on the screen other than big idea at the top. One word in the big idea that is in all capital letters. Do you see which one? Which word is in all capital letters? You can just shout it out. Lord. Lord. Okay. And big idea. idea. Yep. Why is Lord in all caps? Yes, exactly right. Because it means Yahweh. Children's ministry is working, right? (laughs) Parental ministry is working. Lord is in all caps because it means Yahweh. It means something really special. Wherever you see the word Lord, and sometimes here you'll actually see the word God in all caps. Wherever you see the word Lord or the word God in 
all caps, in the Old Testament, that's a signal that the word underneath that word is the word Yahweh. That's usually how it's pronounced in English. It's actually just four letters, Y-H-W-H, and we usually pronounce it Yahweh. And Yahweh is the covenant name of God, the one that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am who I am. That is God's covenant name. In fact, the word Isaiah means Yahweh saves, which would be a great summary of the big idea. And so if you can't remember everything from the big idea, remember what Isaiah's name means. It means Yahweh saves. And that is what Isaiah is all about. And so you will see this word, Lord, in all caps, or sometimes God, all caps, when it's combined with Lord. And every time that is telling us that's the name of our covenant God who had made a covenant with his people and his people were breaking his covenant and breaking his law and breaking his heart. But the sovereign Lord is the one who is in charge, the one who can predict the future, the one who can bring righteous judgment on sinful nations, and who can and will save his people. So in spite of their sin, the sovereign Lord, next, saves his people. And who are his people? Well, we learn from Isaiah that his people are not just Israel and Judah. His people are those he's going to gather from the nations. His people are those from every nation who humbly come to him and trust in him for salvation. So the idea that the Lord would save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that we're like, yeah, there it is in Revelation, and oh, in Acts, there it is in the New Testament. Isn't the New Testament great? The idea that the Lord would save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation didn't start in the New Testament. It started in the Old Testament. It is right in Isaiah, that he's going to save the nations. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. It's not that Yahweh is like a pretty good God for Israel and Judah, and the other gods take care of their countries, and everything's going to be fine, because we've got all these different gods that help their people out. The Lord is God, and there is no one else. And we've already read today the calls in Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 55 to come to seek the Lord, to turn from our sin, and to receive salvation freely. To buy without money. Is it hard to buy things without money? Usually, right? All right, we'll talk about it after, okay, Judah? It's really hard to buy things without money, except from God. Because whatever we bring isn't enough to pay our debt. He pays it for us and accepts us freely. And that offer can come to us through the sacrificial suffering of the Lord's servant. 
So in spite of their sin, the sovereign Lord saves his people. How does he do it? Through the sacrificial suffering of his servant. For all the judgment, there is tons of hope in Isaiah. And that hope of restoration is centered on a particular person, the Lord's servant, and also on a coming king. And you're like, well, there's going to be a servant, there's going to be a king. Who is this? And the answer is Jesus. How does Isaiah point to Jesus? It does in a million ways, but it's showing us all throughout our need of a Savior and the great provision of a Savior, the Messiah, the promised one, the King, the Lord's servant. And we'll see the Lord's servant particularly in chapters 42, 43, 49, 50, and 53. We'll have one of the sermons in this series will be just related to those servant songs. And we'll see in them that the servant is humble and gentle. That the servant does the will of the Lord. You know, different than the people. The servant does the will of the Lord faithfully. The servant will be a light to the nations in Isaiah 42 and 49. The servant gives his body to be beaten. He's bruised, crushed in Isaiah 53. The servant, through his suffering takes the punishment of God in the place of the people who have gone astray, right? Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the servant, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. But then suddenly, the servant who was dead is alive again. It's like, boy, I wonder who that could be about. A servant who's dead and then is alive again and shares the spoils of his victory with the people he saves. And who are those he saves? Those who are humble. Isaiah 57 gives us a vision of God's holiness. He's high. He's lifted up above everything. He dwells above the heavens. And who does he make his dwelling with? The one who is humble in heart and pays attention to his word. He saves those who are humble, trusting in the suffering of the servant in their place. And they are saved forever, chapter 57 tells us. We're told that his people are his witnesses There's another thing that it's like, well, Jesus said that, right? It's like, yeah, Jesus knew his Bible. His people would be Yahweh's witnesses. Who did Jesus claim to be? God in the flesh, the God they were waiting for. And he says, you will be my witnesses. And it's the Lord who says, you are my witnesses. That's in chapter 43 and 44. The Lord promises to be with his people. These people who have sinned, who have been against them. But he says, when I restore you, when I restore your fortunes, I will be with you. And that's where we get from one of the the hymns that we sing. That when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie. Right? I'm with you. That's from Isaiah 41. In Isaiah 43, and he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. I am your God. 
And those saved by the suffering servant have the privilege of becoming servants of God. There's not just one servant. Everyone who's in him is also a servant of God who lives for him and takes the good news of salvation to the nations. But, as we read in verse 20 of chapter 1, if anyone refuses and rejects his salvation, they will come under God's judgment. But at the end, we see all the nations coming to worship the Lord in Isaiah 60. We read, every knee will bow before me. It's like, wait a minute, that's Philippians 2. It's like, yes, Paul knew his Old Testament. He knew Isaiah. And so when we're speaking of every knee bowing before the Lord, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah 45, 23. We learn in Isaiah 32 that a king will come and will reign in righteousness. All the injustice, all the unrighteousness that we've participated in and that we've suffered from, it will end. Because a king is coming to reign in righteousness. In Isaiah 65, we learn that all his people will live with him in new heavens and a new earth. It's like, I thought that was in Revelation. It is. Guess what? John knew his Old Testament. John knew Isaiah. And the vision that John had of the new heavens and the new earth lines up a whole lot with the vision from Isaiah 65. It's a place, this new heavens and the new earth, we learn in Isaiah 11, where there will be peace, prosperity, and no fear of loss. Words like, no more tears. Wait, isn't that also at the end of Revelation? It's like, yes, and it was promised in Isaiah for the Lord's people. Isaiah 25 tells us that the Lord will swallow up death forever. It's like, oh, we're used to that. That's like 1 Corinthians 15. That's what happens at the end in Revelation, and that's what was already promised way back 700 years before Jesus was even born. And we learn right at the end in Isaiah 66 that everyone can get in on this. Now, not everyone will, And that's right at the very end of Isaiah 66 as well. Kind of like this call in Isaiah chapter 1. Turn, come home, and you can get in on this. But if you rebel and reject, you will be cast out. In spite of their sin, the Lord saves his people through the sacrificial suffering of his servant. Can you see how Jesus is all over Isaiah. I haven't even mentioned yet some of the verses that we trot out the most, like the Christmas verses. How do we know that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin? That's Isaiah 7.14. Where do we get that beautiful, for to us a child is born and the son is given? That's Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Who will prepare the way for the Lord? Oh, that's John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And yes, he's in Isaiah 53, which we've already quoted from and that we use a lot on Good Friday and in other parts of the year. 
And yes, he's in Isaiah 61. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, quotes from Isaiah 61. He takes the scroll and reads it. And the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He read most of those three verses, rolled it up, sat down and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus thought it was about him. And it was. So he's in those very specific places but he's everywhere. It's all pointing to him. So much of what we know about who Jesus is, what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, that it really paid for our sins. The promise of life with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. It's all right here in Isaiah. And so let's seek the Lord where he may be found and while he may be found. But he definitely can be found right here in the book of Isaiah. The Lord saves those who humbly trust in him. And so if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, you can trust in him today. You can believe that he really was the suffering servant who died a sacrificial death in spite of your sins, taking all your sins on him. And so the judgment that you deserve to be cast out from God forever, he took that punishment. He bore it all in his body on the tree so that Everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus can have life with him both now and forever. And for those who are trusting in him, we are his witnesses. We are called to live for him in righteousness, justice, and hope-filled, humble service now, even as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, all because of Jesus, the suffering servant, God's forever king. What a savior. Let's pray. Oh God, I'm overwhelmed at how Jesus is revealed over and over in his glory in Isaiah. Would you help us as your people being overwhelmed with who you are in your holiness and your glory and in your condescension to us, your your coming to, to bother with us, why would you bother with us who have rebelled against you? But you do. Would you continually, moment by moment, day by day, amaze us with your love? And would you help us in our moments of struggle, our moments of confusion to run to your word and to see Jesus our Savior there. And that we would indeed come and experience his grace, forgiveness, and mercy again and again. And then being set on our feet by him and have, having his spirit put in us, would we go out doing what's right, loving our neighbors, speaking the good news about this great Savior. Would you do this in us, through us, for your glory and our forever joy. 
In Jesus' name, amen.